You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Do you pray with me? Father, this is our confession. Lord, we recognize as we gather together today that Jesus is above everything else. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we worship you as the exalted one. We don't worship you, Lord, as one among others. We, we worship you, Lord, as the one true God who is exalted above our lives, exalted above this universe. Lord, you, you made all this. You created everything by your will. Everything existed and was created. And consequently, you and you alone are worthy of all glory and honor and power and praise. And God, in our small way this morning, through our song and our fellowship, our giving, our preaching, and our responding to your word, our, our music, our instruments, Lord, everything we have, we, we offer it to you and we trust that it comes up as a sweet-smelling aroma to you. I know our hearts this morning, God, we confess to you the wickedness of our flesh but know the sincerity of our hearts, Lord, that we love you. We love you and we desire, we desire for you to be our honored guest this morning. We welcome you into this place. We pray that you might grant us grace. Grant us grace, God. Draw us to yourself. Give us grace to hear. Give us grace to obey. Give me grace, Lord, to preach and teach. We want to continue, Lord, to worship you in what we do in, in these moments. And we know that unless you help us, God, unless you help us, that nothing we do, nothing we do will have any eternal consequences, won't amount to anything, won't change anything. But God, if you help us, if you help us by your grace and your mercy, Lord, we know we know that we have the opportunity to leave here in a few moments different than the way we came in. So change us, Lord. Change us to look more like Jesus. Pray for every believer in Christ this morning. Pray, God, that you might strengthen our faith through your word. God, I pray for friends that are here that are on spiritual journeys yet to trust in Christ. Oh, God, I pray today would be their spiritual birthday. Today would be the day that you illuminate their minds, stir their hearts, God, change their will, draw them to yourself, make them right before you, adopt them into your family as sons and daughters as you have us. We pray that your spirit, God, would accomplish your purpose in each of our lives. So teach us now, Lord, we pray. Your children hear you. We pray that you would speak to us in Christ's name. Amen. Would you be seated? Let me ask you, uh, if you would, to 
Find a copy of the Bible. If you brought one in, open it to Nehemiah chapter 8 in the Old Testament, the book of Nehemiah. If you're unfamiliar with where that is, just look in the table of contents and find Nehemiah 8. There's some ushers in the aisle that have copies of the Bible. If you came in today and you don't have one, I want to invite you to just to raise your hand until they see you, make eye contact with you, let them place one in your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, um, then feel free uh, to take this one with you. This church would like to give you this as a gift. Uh, and I would like to invite you to help me preach and teach it this morning by finding Nehemiah chapter 8. Uh, for some reason, you didn't take one of those and you don't have one. Just look real lonely to your right or to your left. And maybe there's somebody there that will uh, let you look on uh, with them. Uh, I know that if you're a part of Har- Harvest Niagara on a regular basis, you are used to uh, this uh, time of worship uh, in which uh, you study the Bible as an act of worship. Your pastor preaches it, teaches it, other teachers from time to time. We receive it, we hear it, uh, and we own it. Uh, we say yes to it, and and I'm actually going to show you that in, in this passage of Scripture. So... You help me as you follow along, as you're still finding that place, if you're still looking for it. Let me just take a moment to say thank you to your pastor, especially. Uh, I've grown already to love this brother, got to know him in uh, a doctoral seminar, love his heart. Uh, I've studied a little bit about your congregation even since then and grown to appreciate you and love you and thank God for his grace in your life and the ministry that he has here uh, but I know it's no small thing uh, for a pastor to give up his, his pulpit, his preaching time. It's no small thing for a pastor to trust someone else uh, with the care of his people, people uh, whose souls he's responsible for. And so thank you, Daryl. Thank you, Pastor, for trusting me uh, with this opportunity. Nehemiah chapter 8, this is the word of the Lord under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, The biblical writer writes in verse 1, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for that purpose. Beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on the right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Milkaijah, Hashum, Ashbadadah, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. 
Also, Jeshua, Bani, Shariba, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabed, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And don't be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Don't be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. A number of years ago, I had the privilege of uh, serving as the interim pastor of a church in Mississippi in the United States. The church was in the process of looking for permanent pastors, so I would go every week and preach to them. And I happened to be there uh, on an Easter, uh, and uh, we planned in the service uh, that day to weave the preaching of God's Word into a musical presentation, and so just pulled out all the stops, and we had just the stage was filled with musical instruments and praise teams, and, and there was this huge choir up there, and and, uh, and then at, at, at an assigned portion during the service, af- before and after, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the choir sang, and we had, had songs that the congregation sang, I would preach, but because of everything it was up on the stage, uh, uh, it actually moved the pulpit that normally stayed up on the stage and, and you know, was, was left there. We had actually moved it off that day. And so when the time came for me to preach, I was preaching without a, a lectern or a, a pulpit of any type. Uh, but it happened uh, because of the text that I was preaching that day. I was using a couple of props. I, I don't do that all the time, don't do it very often. But that day, there were a couple of visual aids that I wanted to use to explain uh, the passage of Scripture to the people. Uh, one of those items was a Nike tennis shoe. I was preaching out of Revelation chapter 5, and some of you may know this, but the word Nike is actually a Greek word. Uh, it's taken from a Greek word, which in the language of the New Testament means to rise above and reign supreme over. So it's used of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I just thought I'd take this Nike tennis shoe, make that connection, explain that to the people. So uh, because we didn't have a pulpit, I, I took a little kind of like in table uh, to be able to set that and another visual aid on, uh, you know, before I I use them in the message. Time came when I was explaining the text and uh, I I got to that word. I reached down, I grabbed the Nike tennis shoe and I set my Bible on uh, down on the uh, the little table. I showed him the shoe and explained what I just explained to you. And then I set the table back down, uh, set the tennis shoe back down on the table and picked up my Bible. After the service that day, we'd been invited to some people's house for lunch. They'd invited a number of people from the church 
celebration. We were there waiting for the host uh, uh, to put the food on the table, and so we were just kind of mingling, and there was a, a young woman from Egypt, her and her brother, uh, had immigrated un, uh, to the United States under persecution of their faith as believers and had gotten involved in this church. She walked up to me and uh, she began to be very affirming about the message and thank me for you know the sermon and the things that I said. And I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation like this where somebody's giving you a compliment, but they you know they're setting you up. You know, well I, I I could feel that coming. You know, and so she she said some affirming things and and then she said it. She said, but, and I knew it was coming. And she said, but I, I have to tell you that my brother and I were very offended at a particular place in your message. I was just completely blown away. I couldn't imagine what I had said, what I had done. I said, what, what did I say? What did I say that offended you? And she said, well, it wasn't anything you said. It was something you did. She said, at one point in the message, you set the Bible down on the same surface as a dirty tennis shoe. She said, no believer in my country would ever put God's word on the same plane as a dirty tennis shoe. And then she explained to me how when her and her brother had come to the United States, how appalled they were to watch adults walk into an auditorium and put their Bibles on the floor, watched young people sling them across pews in the church to save a seat. And, and, and I totally got, I totally realized in that moment that, that, that I, they understand that you could take what she was saying too far but, but I have to be honest with you and tell you, as I listened to her describe her reverence for the Word of God, I began to ask myself, I began to ask myself, how do I treat the physical book? And then I began to ask myself, how, the, how does the way I treat the physical book reflect on what I, I actually see to be the Word of God. It launched me on a journey that I really haven't finished yet, but just at a constant reevaluation as a pastor, not just in my own life, but in the lives of the congregation that I had been responsible for shepherding and did shepherd on what we thought about the book as a community of faith. And not even so much about what we thought about the physical book, but about how we treat, treated the physical book reflected on how we looked at, 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 at what the Word of God actually is. I know in that journey, this passage is one of the ones that I came across revisited to help me think about the subject I want, I want us to think about together this morning, and that is the role of Scripture in the community of faith. In, in this, this thing called the people of God, and specifically in the gatherings we have, like this gathering this morning, and how it reflects on, on how it affects our lives how we approach it, what we think we're doing when we actually come to this book. When you come to Nehemiah chapter 8, you are looking at the community of faith in the Old Testament gathered together. I'm going to tell you a little bit about that and what's going on in just a moment. But when you look at these people gathered together, you see right at the very heartbeat of what they're doing. Right at the very heartbeat of the reason, listen to me, come in here real close, the reason for their gathering is the Holy Scriptures. I don't want to take the time to build a case of 
you know, my conviction and application of, of what they had as the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, the Mosaic Law, and what we have in 66 books that make up two uh, covenants, the Old Testament and the New Testament, I, I believe that we are on safe ground. If you'll just humor me and take my word for it this morning, I know you share this value. I believe that we are on safe ground making application. And I believe this, I believe just about everything you see in this passage of Scripture with regard to the role of holy scriptures we could verify in the new testament church which is who we are and who what we are so i want us to think together about the role of scripture in the community of faith and i I want to ask god and i want you to ask god as we do to help us reevaluate what we think about this book and its role in what we do now, let's make sure we understand what's going on. I want to ask you to do a little Bible study with me this morning, beginning with looking at some things in this passage that help us put this on the calendar, okay? I want us to put it in its context. We probably should have started reading in the last verse of chapter 7 here in Nehemiah 8. Look back at it, jump right into the middle. The last sentence says in my English translation, and when the seventh month, make a mental note of that, When the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. That puts this on the calendar. The seventh month actually was the beginning of the Jewish New Year. You will see it referenced again at the end of verse 2 here in chapter 8, where it says on the first day of the seventh month. This is New Year's Day, people. This was New Year's Day for, for, for the Israelites. Now, it's really important for us to understand what New Year's Day meant to them. So here's the Bible study portion. Hold, uh, hold your finger here in Nehemiah chapter 8. I want you to go back. I want to show you two passages of Scripture that will help us to know what is going on in this passage of Scripture. So first of all, go back to Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. So you're talking about the... The third book in, in the whole Bible, when you find Leviticus, find chapter 23. Now, when you get to Leviticus 23, some of you will recognize this portion of Scripture. It's one of those portions that, you know, when we're doing our daily Bible reading, we are tempted to put an oscillating fan on the desk next to our Bible so that it blows the pages by quickly. Because we look at this stuff and, and, and we read about, you know, the, the, the rituals, the, the Old Testament liturgical system, all the sacrifices, and particularly here, all of the feast days that were prescribed to the Israelites. And so so often, we don't think that stuff has any relevance for our lives. Well, I want you to see right here in Leviticus chapter 23, and let's look at verse 23. We'll jump in the middle of the chapter, verse 23, to start with. Here, God is describing through Moses to the people the, the feasts that he wants them to celebrate, the special days, the special occasion. Verse 23 in Leviticus 23, it says, Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel, say, in the seventh month, that will sound familiar, right? So there's the seventh month on the first day of the month. So there's New Year's Day he's establishing right here. You shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with a blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. And so he's saying, here's we're going to establish this as the New Year, New Year's Day, and you're going to observe what, what came to be known as the Feast of Trumpets. Okay? Hold on to that. Keep reading. Verse 26. 
the Lord spoke to Moses saying, now on the 10th day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. You see it? It shall be for you a time of holy convocation. You shall afflict yourselves, probably fasting it's talking about, doing without, and present a food offering to the Lord. You shall not do any work on that day, for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. You know what he's talking about, right? Atonement. Atonement for what? Atonement for their sin. This came to be the day that the high priest once a year would go into the Holy of Holies and, and, and make the sacrifice that would atone for the people's sin. They would take a goat called a scapegoat uh, and, and lay the priest would lay their hands on it as a symbol of the people's sin being transferred onto the goat. And they would send the goat away in the wilderness to represent their sins being removed as far as from the east is from the west, cast into the sea of, of God's forgetfulness. This is what would happen on the day of atonement. Verse 29, whoever is not afflicted on that day shall be cut off from the people. Whoever does any work on that day, that person it will, it will be destroyed from among the people. God's serious about this. This is a big deal. It was a big deal for them to recognize, listen to me, what he was doing about their sin. Okay? Let's go on for the sake of time. Skip down to verse 33. So you got the Feast of Trumpets. On the first day of the month, 10 days later, you got the Day of Atonement. Now look at verse 33. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, On the 15th day of the seventh month and for seven days is the Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacles. He says, uh, this is uh, to, to be done to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation, present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. So here's what's happened. Starting on the fifth day, they, they, they went out and they lived in tents for a week. You know why they lived in tents? To remind them of how God brought them out of Egypt, was their Savior, their Deliverer, and they lived in tents in the wilderness for all of that period of time. So that's the calendar. First day of the month, blast of trumpets, feast of trumpets, new year. On the tenth day of the month, the day of atonement, your sins are forgiven, they are absolved. Five days later, you're going to spend some time out in tents being reminded of how good God is and how he provided for you and he delivered you and he did all of those things. That is what is going on in Nehemiah chapter 8. And I want you to see one other thing. Turn over a few pages from Leviticus to the book of Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the fifth book in your Bible, and find chapter 31. Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy 31, beginning in verse 9. Right before the children go into the promised land, Deuteronomy basically is a book of sermons that Moses preached to the children of Israel, things God told them to say. Verse 9 of Deuteronomy 31, Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord into all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, At the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the feast of booths. Do you see it? 
of the Feast of Tabernacles. When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men and women and little ones, and the sojourner within their towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of the law. That's why he wanted them to do it. That's why I want them to read the book of the law. That purpose statement right there. So that they would be careful to do all the words of the law. And look at it, verse 13. Their children who have not known it may hear the, and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Brothers and sisters, that is the calendar and the context of Nehemiah chapter 8. That's what's going. The children of Israel had been in exile for decades leading up to this. Many of you know the story. They're now allowed to come back in the land. They came in waves. This is the third wave of people coming back in. They had rebuilt the temple, and now Nehemiah led them to build the wall around the city of Jerusalem to protect the city, to preserve the community of faith. And, 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 and for decades, listen, they hadn't had access to the Scriptures to be able to do the things God had commanded them to do to observe these feasts, to, to obey the command to read the law, and they're trying to fix it. They're trying to realign the community of faith back with the book of the law now that they have come back in the land. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, they're gathered together on the first day of the seventh month on the new year in an attempt to do that. And you know what is right at the center of what they're doing? Right at the center of it is the Holy Scriptures. And, and, and they come together, and in the midst of their worship, in the midst of their worship, this passage of Scripture, I think, describes for us some effects that God intends for His Word to have on the community of faith. And that's what I want you to see in this passage. I want to show you seven effects Seven effects of God's word in our midst, in our lives, beginning with us as individuals, but extending to us, listen, moms and dads, children as families, and then Harvest Niagara for us as a community of faith as we gather together and we do life together. So let me show them to you. Here's number one. It builds our community. The scripture builds our community. Verse 1, it says, all the people gathered together for this event. I don't know if you noticed it when I read the text just a moment ago, but the word people is actually used 13 times in these first 12 verses. Nine times it's in the context of the phrase, all the people. I mean, Nehemiah, who the book is written after and who is the governor, I mean, he's only mentioned maybe once here. Ezra's just mentioned a few times he's the priest. But the people, the people, 13 times in this passage of Scripture. And the text calls attention to all of them. And then it describes them. The biblical writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses this description. Here's the image as he looks at this mass of people that's gathered together. Look at how he describes them in verse 1, all the people together gathered together as one man. 
He's not seeing them as individuals. He's not looking at individual agendas or preferences. He's not hearing those. The people are not communicating to those. What is being exemplified and represented and demonstrated is a people of faith, of a covenant community are coming together. And the thing, listen, the thing that is tying them together is not the preacher, Ezra. It's not the governor, Nehemiah. It's not personal preferences or agenda. It is the scriptures. This is the thing that is building their community. Listen, this is the thing that is rebuilding their, their community. It is the glue that is bringing them together and tying them together. Don't miss it, beloved. Just about everything else we do as a people of faith is, is going to change. Our musical styles are going to change. They have changed from previous generations. And listen, don't get tied to them because they'll change moving forward. Dress styles, the way we dress, they're going to stay. Our personal preference, programs that we do, we're going to constantly be adjusting along the way. There's all kinds of things. We, it characterizes us as a people of faith. But the thing that will hold us together is not any of those things things. The thing that will hold us together is the Word of God, is the Scriptures. It builds our community. So much more we could say, but for the sake of time, let me move on. Secondly, it enables our hearing. It enables our hearing. Now, this is not a, a health lesson about, well, we hear sounds or noises. Let me tell you what I'm talking about hearing. It, it, it enables our hearing of something particular, specific. And you know what that is? The voice of God. The Holy Scriptures, they enable us to hear God's voice. I want you to look at the middle of verse 1. Notice, notice what, what the author says. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book. Let me just stop right there and you know, throw something in and tell you, this is something I tell all of my preaching students, guys that are going to be pastors of churches. I tell them, God, guys, pray God gives you a congregation like this. Pray that God gives you a congregation that looks at you and says, bring us the book. We like you, pastor. We, we, you know, we, we appreciate you and we love what's going on in our church. But what we need is the book. So bring us the book. I'm glad that was the desire of these people. But look at what, what they understood the book to be. To Bring us the book of the law of Moses, he says, was their request, that the Lord had commanded Israel. Now, I want you to see something. There is a really good description of the doctrine of inspiration found in those words right there. You know what I mean by the doctrine of inspiration? The, 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 the belief that this book that you hold in your hand and that I have right here is actually, it was actually authored by God. Now, now, let me show you something. They understood that there was a physical book. That's what they wanted. Bring us the book. Now, we hadn't had it in decades, they were saying. We want to hear. Bring us the book. Not only did they believe that they had, there was a book that they needed, but they believed the book had a human author. Did you notice it? Bring us the book of the law of Moses. They knew that there was a man named Moses that had actually written down those first five books of, of, of the Old Testament. It had a human author that penned it, but did you notice that they understood it didn't originate with Moses? Do you see it? Bring us the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. They believed there was a book. The book had a human author, but they believed God was the one that actually spoke the words 
that the human author wrote down. You know what they were asking for? Uh, They weren't putting the emphasis on a bound book or a scroll or something. And they weren't even here as highly as they revered him and as much as they thought of the the, the deliverer, the one who had led them out of Egypt from a human standpoint. As much as they thought of Moses, he was not the one they wanted to hear from. They wanted to hear the voice of God and they believed that this was God's voice. This is what the New Testament writers say about the Bible, you old and your all of the Old Testament. I think even affirmation of the books of the New Testament that were added to it because Peter would acknowledge Paul's writings as on the same plane as Scripture. He would include them there. This is why Peter said that holy men of God were, were moved along like wind moves the sail of a sailboat and they wrote this down. It didn't originate with them, but it started with God. Paul would say all scripture is given by inspiration of God, is breathed out by God. Now Harvest, I know that you know that and I know that you believe it, but here's the question that I want to ask you practically, functionally. When you open it in the morning to have your quiet time or late at night, do you approach that as an opportunity to hear the voice of God. Moms and dads, when you open it with your kids, kids, when you listen to your mom and dad, mom and dad teach it, do you see that as an occasion to hear the voice of God? Here's what I want to ask you in a corporate gathering like this. When a guy like me or your pastor or someone else stands up and takes the word of God and preaches and teaches, do you come to this time? Do you come to this time in anticipation of hearing the very voice of God? Or do you just think this is a sermon? You just think this is something we do in churches, that preachers do. It's part of our tradition. Beloved, you see, what we see, what, how we view this time right now, what's going on right now, is dependent upon what we think about the nature of this book. If we believe it's just a book of history or science or, 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 or a, a great writings of antiquity, then, then that's the way we'll approach it. We will come to listen to sermons, to listen to somebody teach us about that. But, but if we are convicted, if we are resolved that these words were breathed out by God and we understand that he wrote them down so that we could keep coming back to them, so that we would never miss them, then every time we come to this moment right here that we're engaged in right now, we come with an anticipation of hearing the very voice of God. That's what Scripture does. These written words enable us to hear the very voice of God. Number three, it fosters our understanding. Going right along with that, did you you notice... How many times the word, some form of the word understand is used in these verse, first 12 verses? Five times. Five times some form of the word understand is mentioned. And it is the criteria, listen to this, it is the criteria that determined who got to play, who got to participate, their ability to be able to understand. And that understanding is the catalyst for their response to it. Let, let me show you. First time is toward the end of verse 2. Both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. That's who got to play. That's who got to gather together. 
See it again in the middle of verse 3, in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. Then you'll see it again toward the end of verse 7. Those Levites helped the people to understand the the law. And then you'll see it at the end of verse 8, so that the people understood the reading. All of those speak of uh, of the reason they're doing, the criteria for who got to participate and, and, and why they were doing it. Look at the end of verse 12. There's one more time. It says the people went out and they obeyed because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Now, I know you know this, but one of the, one of the things we use to interpret the Bible to help us understand the, the, the main point of a passage of Scripture is to look for repetition. It's not always repetition in every passage, but many times there is. And anytime you find that repetition, we've got to stop and ask, all right, it, you know, that, what's, what's, what's the deal here? And, and when we look at the word understand, just like the word people, we see this repeated over and over again. It tells us something. And you know what it tells us here? It tells us that just hearing the Bible is not enough. It tells us that just reading the Bible is not enough. Listen, it tells us that just applying the Bible is insufficient If it is disconnected from this, and that is the right understanding of God's Word. Everything they're doing here is for the purpose of people understanding, not just hearing it. Ezra stands up to read. The people listen. They're gathered together. They're going to hear the Word read, not just hearing, but understanding. You know why? Because understanding is the key to life transformation. Now, now I, I know what it means when we say, well, you know, I'm not just about the head, I'm about the heart. It's not enough just to get the Bible in your head, you got to get it in your heart. I, I understand that, but when we come to scriptures, we have to understand there's not as big a gap between the head and the heart as we seem to think. We put them in two different categories. You either just get it in your head or you get it in your heart, whereas the Bible would say the way you get it in your heart is through your head. That's what he's talking about here. You have to understand it in order for transformation, for its supernatural nature to take root in your life. And beloved, that is what is so important about what we do in this time. And it's it's why you, Harvest Niagara, do what you do. Because I know what you do is not what every church in this area does or every church in Canada, just like not every church in the United States does. Not everybody does what is referred to sometimes as expository preaching. This is why your pastor does what he does. This is why he takes a passage of Scripture and he breaks it down and he, and he explains it to you and, and connects it to your life. He'll take a section, sometimes preaching through books. That's not because he wants to say, hey, I'm an expository preacher. It's not so you can say, well, our pastor's an expository preacher. We are an expository church. It is for this reason right here. It is because it is imperative that we understand Scripture in order for life transformation to take place. It's why you do what you do in your small groups. It's why, as individuals, when you come to God's Word, it's not enough just, oh, I read my Bible today, but are you leaning into it, seeking to make sure that you understand what you are reading? Holy Scriptures fosters our understanding. It is moving us toward that so that we can hear the very voice of God. This is summarized, by the way, I think, in verse 8. They read from the book. 
from the law of God. And in my English translation, it says clearly. Clearly is a word in the language of the Old Testament that that basically means section by section, paragraph by paragraph, if you want. You know what they were doing? They were taking the Scripture, they were breaking it down in understandable parts. They were taking bites of it and explaining that to the people. Notice it says they, 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 they read from the law of God clearly and they gave the sense you see, most of the people, all the, all the congregation had come out of, uh, of exile. Uh, most of them were, were individuals that had been raised. They'd been born and raised in exile, not in the homeland. Consequently, they didn't grow up uh, speaking and reading Hebrew. They grew up speaking and reading the diplomatic language of the day, Aramaic. But the Old Testament law was written in what? It was written in Hebrew, right? Somebody had to translate that for them. Somebody had to say, now let's look at this section right here, and, 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 and this is well, you know, well, what you hear in Aramaic, here's what it means in, you know, in the language of the Old Testament, and, and this is what they were doing, this is what they were spending their time. Somebody was making that connection for them, and so they read from the book of the law of God clearly, section by section, and they gave the sense, they translated it for people. Why? Look at it so that the people understood the reading. When we come to this word, this word fosters that. It compels us to that. Kudos for you. I'm glad, I affirm, I encourage you in your choice to be a part of a church that understands that value and holds to it. I encourage you, I implore you, keep at it. Keep at it, not for reputation's sake, but because you have a conviction that you need to understand God's Word. So it builds our community, enables our hearing, it fosters our understanding. Fourth, it inspires our worship. I, you know, I'll, I'll let you chase this down you know, mostly. I'm going to spend a ton of time here because it's, it's, it's pretty obvious. Did you notice? Did you notice all of the expressions of worship that were prompted by the reading of the Word? The reading and teaching of the There's not any music mentioned in this passage of Scripture. Now, let me tell you something. I think music is a really important part of our worship. I think it's a really important part. I, I love musical worship. I love to be with you when you're doing musical worship. I can't sing a lick. All right? I can, I, I, you know, it's, it's horrible to hear me sing. I, you know, I don't want the sound guys. I, I need to turn my microphone off during musical worship because you don't want to hear me sing. That's why I love to come to church and sing because I can sing and you drown me out. You know, but, but, but I can sing and I can join in. Nobody has to listen to me. I love musical worship. But in our day and time, it seems that we have created a, a chasm, a dichotomy where we have limited worship to music. And this is why we say we're going to have a time of worship, and then the preacher's going to come and give his sermon. We talk about you know, worship leaders, most of the time just the musicians. Could, could I just point out to you that there is no music, no instruments mentioned in this passage of Scripture. The only thing that is being done is God's Word is being presented, and guess what the people are doing? They're worshiping. You notice, Ezra opened it in verse 5, he, you know, he, 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 he stood up and he read to the people. Verse 6, he blessed the Lord. He wasn't blessing the book. 
He was blessing the great God. All the people answered, amen, amen. They said, we agree with that. That's true, that's true. And they were lifting up their hands, obviously at times. And then at other times, look, they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. There's so many of these expressions that oftentimes today we limit to just music, right? So we ask you to stand when we sing songs. We ask you to sit down when the preacher gets up to preach. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But I, I, I just am showing you that Right here, when, when God's word was read, the people stood up. A lot of times we raise our hands in musical worship and praise to the one that the songs are about or they address to. I think, and, and that's a good thing, but notice here, they're raising their hands in worship and praise to the God who wrote the book, who was speaking. They're bowing their faces to the ground. Let me ask you again, how do you approach this time when you come to worship. What do you think is happening when God's word is being taught, when it is being preached? Does it inspire you to worship? Not the book, not the preaching event, not the preacher, but the God that is being exalted in the book. It inspires our worship. Number five, it reveals our gospel. It reveals our gospel. You say, Jim, is the gospel really here in Nehemiah 8? Oh, I think so. Did you notice another expression of worship that people had right here? Was they were wrecked by it. Totally wrecked by it. They were weeping. And you see it, you, you know, that Nehemiah and Ezra have to tell them down there in verse 9, don't mourn. And it says at the end of verse 9, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Do you know why that was happening? You know why they were weeping? Because as they heard the scriptures read, they realized something. They realized that they had spent decades in exile because of their own sin. It was their fault. And it messed them up. So, so God's word brought to light their own sin and it broke them. And obviously in these moments of mourning and wailing and weeping, they repented before God. But you see the emphasis here is it's not on all the details of that brokenness. You know what it's on? It's on Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites coming and saying, okay. That's enough. It's enough weeping. Don't, don't cry anymore because this is not a day of crying. This is a day that is holy to the Lord. Do you know why they were telling them that? Remember the calendar? Feast of trumpets. Leading to in ten days what? The day of atonement. Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites said, Look, you don't need to cry. Because see, in just a few days... We're going to celebrate the Day of Atonement in which God is going to demonstrate how He has done something for your sin that you could not do for yourself. He's atoned for it. You make the connection, brother or sister, living on this side of the cross, part of the church of Jesus Christ. They were looking forward to and actually only forward to a representation, a symbol that would still look forward to something else. Today, you and I sit here looking back. We look back on the event in which God made atonement for our sin through His very Lamb. He came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ and He lived a life that you couldn't live and I couldn't live, a perfect life, a life that met God's standard of holiness. But then instead of holding on to that, 
He took that life and he took your sin and my sin and he, he went to the cross and there he incurred the wrath of a holy God against that sin. Not his own sin because he didn't have any, but against your sin that he took on, against my sin. There he stood in your stead, in your place. And he incurred God's wrath against our sin and he atoned for it. He atoned for it. His blood was shed that our sins might be forgiven and removed as far as the east is from the west, cast in the sea of God's forgetfulness, not in such a way that we have to keep coming back to a day of atonement every year, but forever and ever and ever. Every sin you ever committed, every sin you ever will commit, Jesus died for it. And he rose again to put the life of God back inside of you so you would no longer be in bondage to sin, but you would have God's life. That's good news, beloved. That is good news. That is the gospel. And here there is an Old Testament picture that looks forward to that. And it is why these leaders were saying, you don't need to cry. You've repented. You don't need to weep like God. Because God has done something about your sin that you couldn't do for yourself. I'm talking to believers in Christ this morning because you see, you know, this passage says the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's what the leader said to him. The joy that comes with being forgiven of your sin, it provides you the strength to live day by day. We don't need the gospel just to forgive us of our sins back when we were converted. We need the gospel to live every day of the Christian life. Every day we are dependent upon him. But anytime there's a crowd this size... There's always some, one, two, three, maybe more, who've never come to that place. And that may be your journey today. And if you're on that spiritual journey, I want to thank you for being here. This church is glad you're here. But this church doesn't want you to miss this gospel. If you've never trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, hear this good news. He has come to live a life that you can't live. Don't go out of here thinking, oh, those people at Harvest Niagara are good folks, and maybe one day I can become a part of them, but first I got to get some things in order. First I got to clean my life up. Listen, beloved, you can't do that. You cannot do that. We couldn't do it either. That's why Jesus had to come. He had to come to do for us what we could not do for ourselves and live a perfect life. But then he took your inability, he took your sin, and he went to the cross there and he died for it. And he died there to take your place. So you didn't have to. He died the death. You should have died. I should have died. And then he rose from the dead. And this morning he stands ready to put the life of God back inside of you, the life that you were intended to live. And this morning, if, if that's you, I want to appeal to you on behalf of all these that are Christians in this room today. If that's you, I don't care if you listen to another thing that I'm saying right there at your seat in your heart of hearts. If you will repent of your sin, change your mind about your sin, change your mind about the person of Jesus and trust him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. If you'll do that, he'll save you and he'll put the life of God back inside of you. We invite you to do that today. Christians, you come back in here and you remember this is, this is a reminder for us. Every time we come to the scripture, whatever text we're in, Old Testament or New Testament, that passage stands somewhere in relation to the cross, somewhere in relation to the gospel. And every time we come to it, we are compelled to ask, what, what role does this play? What place does it have in the gospel? And it is always calling us back to the gospel of Jesus Christ.
Number six, it, it fuels our mission. I know you're a missional church. I know you've got, got emphases on going and getting the gospel here. Be encouraged by this. Notice, notice what, what the leaders tell them to do in verse 10. Go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. And then in verse 12, that's exactly what they do. They go and they celebrate and they send portions to people that don't have them. You know, that's part of the gospel mission, isn't it? There will always be people out there, people that live next door to you, people in the cubicle next to you at work, students, people and students in the desk, on the playground, on the ball field that you play with, people across St. Catharines, across Ontario, across the nation of Canada. And across the planet who don't have portions. They don't know this gospel. Some of them don't have access to it. They've never even heard it before. Others have access to it but they don't understand it. And they have no place for it. And somebody's got to go on their behalf. Every one of us here. Every one of us this morning are compelled to go to the people that are in our circles of influence. You as a church are compelled to plant churches. Some of you will be pushed out of comfortable seats like this to go be part of new church plants. Others of you to go across Canada. Some of you to uproot your family and leave your jobs to go to an unreached people group somewhere because that is your responsibility. It is our responsibility. You know why? Because the gospel compels us to go and take this good news. Take this good news to people who don't have it, who don't know it. And every time we come to Scripture, every time we come to Scripture, there is some installment that is going to be made in our mission of getting this gospel to unbelievers. Finally, it requires our our obedience. It requires our obedience. Everything else hinges on this. You know, we could learn, we'd study this passage of Scripture and learn all about the history and even about the connections it makes to our life. But if verse 12 doesn't happen, it's all for naught. Look at it. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions to make ready great rejoicing. Why? Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Somebody read the book, somebody explained the book to them, connected it to their lives, showed them the gospel, and then you know what they did? They obeyed it. They obeyed it because they understood it. You see, the blessing you have of having a pastor and other elders that teach you the Word of God and explain is, is there is a higher standard of accountability. The blessing you have becomes your responsibility and your steward because you are helped to understand the word so clearly. Guess what? You got to obey it. You got to do it. It means nothing if we don't allow it to find its way from our head, through our heart, into our feet and our hands. Every time we come to this scripture, whether it's being preached in a service like this or taught in a home or in our individual quiet times and worship the Lord, we come, we hear the voice of God. God speaks and we are compelled to say yes. Sometimes we say yes, God, I, I understand it, but I don't get it. I, I don't, it didn't, I don't make, it doesn't make sense why you would say that, but I get it. But you are God and I'm not, so I'm going with you. And I'm, I'm giving you myself. I'm yielding my will to you for obedience. So we come to this Old Testament passage and we see clearly how this passage is pointing us to gatherings like this and communities of faith like this. 
and our community is built on it. We are enabled to hear the voice of God through this same scripture. It fosters our understanding. It inspires our worship. It points us and reminds us always to, to, to the gospel. And it fuels us to, to be a going people. But all of that hinges on us saying yes to him. God, we will obey. Not because we can obey in and of ourselves, but we can obey because of what he's done through the gospel in our lives. I want to invite you this morning, Harvest, to resolve afresh. Resolve afresh to let the word continue to do and be what it is, what it does and is in your midst. Because I know this is a value you share, but in a fresh way this morning, renew your commitment every time you come to it, to long to hear the voice of God, to receive it as the voice of God, and then to say yes to it. Let's pray together. God, we want to say thank you this morning for speaking and revealing yourself through your words. And God, thank you. Thank you that you knew Jim Shaddix would need it to be tangible in a way he could keep coming back to it and be reminded about it. So thank you for writing it down. Thank you for giving us a book. Thank you for the privilege the freedom we have, I know, in my country, and I know that these brothers and sisters share here in Canada to own copies of this and, and to be able to bring them into gatherings like this, to be able to open and read them. Lord, we don't take that for granted. We know we're never guaranteed that, and the day may come in both of our countries where we're not allowed to do that. Thank you, God. We thank you for the blessing. We thank you for the gospel that is revealed here. Thank you for showing us Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for coming to us and saving us and forgiving our sins and putting your life back inside of us through Christ. Thank you for the hope that we have of heaven. Thank you for the stewardship, God, of being able to go and tell other people about this. Give us great grace for that. Fill us with your spirit and empower us for it. God, thank you for grace that is sufficient for us to be obedient to it. Not on our own merits, but on the merits of your life inside of us. We're grateful for that. Pray this morning, God, that you would continue to shower grace upon us to these ends. And Lord, I, I also pray for grace for our friends that are here this morning, maybe wrestling with becoming Christians. Draw them to yourself right now. Oh God, compel them to come. Quicken them by your spirit and save them. God, illuminate their minds and stir their hearts and change their will. Let this be, God, a day of rejoicing as their spiritual birthday. So we pray you would accomplish all of this and more things that I can't even think about or even fathom that you want to do. God, we yield ourselves to you to those ends. In Jesus' name, amen.